Welcome to Exploring Possibilities. I'm your host, Cheryl Sitz. Since 2012, Mario Rosales of Tech Life Balance and I have been airing inspiring, insightful conversations with all kinds of change agents who are raising the vibration on our planet. It's the intention of our show to explore possibilities and shift perspectives in holistic, spiritual ways. You'll hear how various industry experts discover and share their deepest passions to make a bigger difference in the world. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And do me a favor, please come back and rate the show so that new people can find us. We'll introduce our next guest in just a moment. Have you ever gone to a social media seminar and you have the online experts telling you, get a blog, get a website, get on social media, all this other stuff. By the time you're done with that seminar, that online expert is very good at frying your brain. The funny part is, you come back home, you get in front of the computer, and you're lost. Hi, I am Mario with Tech Life Balance. I see this all the time. You spend so much money and still don't know what is going on with your online presence. And you know, you probably don't need all of that. Let me go ahead and translate Geek to English for you and show you what you really need because you don't need it all. You probably only need a few components. You have a great message out there and I would like to hear it, and I definitely want to help you put it out there. I am Mario Rosales with TechLifeBalance.net. I produce this podcast because I love distributing messages. Let me help you distribute your message. Hi, it's your host, Cheryl Sitz. And when I'm not doing this podcast, I really enjoy coaching you on how you can have the life you really want. As creators of our own reality, there's a lot of ways that we can block ourselves, hold ourselves back, or just not get really clear on what it is we want. Once we do that, there is no stopping us. I'd love to help you do that. Get in touch with me at CherylSits.com. This spring, Mario Rosales and I were invited to visit Tiny Texas Houses in Luling, where we met owner-founder Brad Cattell and stayed as his guest at one of his artistic, toxin-free tiny homes made entirely out of American salvage. We played, took pictures, visited with other people on the 40 acres, and spent a couple of hours with Brad. Brad is an amazing creative genius with a personal story that includes love and loss, rising from the depths of poverty to being a millionaire, and ultimately finding his balance following the tragic loss of his son while creating tiny Texas houses. On today's show, I'll focus on the story of the creative, brilliant, eclectic Brad Cattell, also known as Darby. Then in our October 1st digital magazine, we'll share pictures from our visit, Brad's tiny houses, his philosophy behind salvage, his holistic commitment to toxin-free living, and much more. And you can get that digital magazine absolutely free at journeyofpossibilities.com. Brad started out sharing about his childhood as an army brat moving around from their first destination in La Paz, Bolivia. And so I was very lucky. I got to see Machu Picchu and walk um, Lake Titicaca when I was a little boy. And I got to um, experience things most kids don't get to experience. But I also went from one environment that was foreign to another. I played with naked little Indian kids across the street from my house where I lived in Bolivia, where behind us was the president of Bolivia, and in front of us was poor naked natives. And my dad, whom I didn't even know at the time, was in the Army, but working for the CIA. And we had a photo lab in our garage, a one-car garage, 1957, 59. I'm a kid. I don't know nothing. He's out there taking pictures and doing stuff because back then we just destabilized the government and changed out the rulers and had 32 different rulers in 50 years. Presidents. The president lived right behind our back wall because I got in trouble because I climbed up on the maid's quarters because we had <laughs> one dollar bought you a hundred thousand Bolivian dollars in those days. So our maid cost, you know, our garden was ten dollars a month. Maid was so small. So I, I back on the roof and the president's daughter was about 
four. And she told the gardener to get a ladder. And I went down the ladder and went and started playing in the president's yard. My dad had to go to the front gate and beep for me. Oh, man, did I get a whipping over that one. So I grew up in a very unusual environment. And throughout all of this, Brad had health issues. At two years old, he got behind the wheel of an idling car with his mom standing outside nearby talking with a friend. And somehow he got that car in gear and crashed. This resulted in severe curvature of the spine that would contribute to health issues and awkwardness throughout his childhood. So my dad turned me into a pacifist, which is an army brat. is not very popular, but, you know, turn the other cheek. You know, it takes a bigger man to walk away from a fight than get into one. Wow, in the army, that is different. Yeah, real popular. Real popular, <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, because I was in Germany, I came back to the United States and went to Michigan. Michigan is really redneck state, in case you're not aware of it. The accent that I do have is a Michigander accent. That's mm-hmm. the, as I understand, we speak faster than normal people. Yes. Yeah, and so... I found that out when I went from, ultimately, my senior year in high school, I went from Michigan to Alabama. <laughs> and they had no idea what you were talking Boom. about, ever. <laughs> I thought I had a speech impediment. I swear to God, I thought I'd lost the ability to speak with my lips. Because people, I get done saying something, they go, huh? <laughs> what? My senior year in high school, I was, um, I was working all the time from the time I was 12 years old on. But my back issues kind of kept me from playing sports. I couldn't play football. I wasn't supposed to, you know, I couldn't wrestle. I was supposed to have had a heart murmur, too. Anyway, so I had lots of issues. Uh, that we got out of the army. Um, we came back. My dad had gone to Vietnam. And a chiropractor got hold of me and started manipulating my back and straightening me out. And at that point, I could, if I bent over to pick up a set of books in my chair, I, even in school, like this, and try to do that without everybody in class knowing you're doing it. Cause, because you know, as a pacifist, I was getting beat up by all the bullies because I came back from Germany and I was weird and different. Yeah. And didn't fit in. and cause You I went, not fitting in, being a little yeah. different? I can't imagine <laughs> Oh, yeah. I was a geek, too, by the way. I was definitely the absolute geek. I had plastic glasses issued by the Army, U.S. Army. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? The black plastic? Oh, yeah. They were popular somewhere on stage. <laughs> it didn't work for me so good. Uh-huh. All right. Yeah. And then my name was Kittel is the way they pronounced it. You might be old enough to remember the little Kittle dolls. Oh, yeah. Little Kittle. Yeah. Oh. I pronounce it Kittel. That's my family and the rest of the world pronounces it Kittle. So when I got off the bus... On my entrance, skadiddle kittles, da, 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 or perfume kittles, or whichever kittle is coming out of the strawberry kittles, the little dolls this long that had the long ass hair. Uh-huh. Yeah, I took caught the resin of that, and and I had to leave usually in the back door because the bullies would wait for me even at the end of the at the end of my classroom. My my mom had you know the nice black pants. I had black pants and a white shirt with the high belt and. Glasses. I fit in really good. Yeah, I for one understand an awkward childhood. Fast forwarding a bit, Brad was back in the States as a young man searching for work, and his first tiny house of sorts was a school bus he was traveling around and living in, and times were getting rough. Well, it was a 73 school bus, 66 passenger Bluebird. I get all the way up there rolling downhill, $15 in my pocket, and the motor blows. Picked up the newspaper, 1981. Boeing lays off 15,000 people in one day. The great recession and i was there for it yeah it was really great time to arrive with 15 dollars in your pocket and a monk rewards card i did have a monk rewards card so and having worked since i was 12 years old i had college education i thought i'd get a job easy all of a sudden i can get a job anywhere because i was so proud of my cum law graduated english american degree and student loan all that stuff all of a sudden i can get a job for the life of me and so i then went to literally um i took the bus dragged out to the middle of index washington uh, a glacier-fed river with no electricity and lived on that for a little teeny bit and went to the koa once a week to Take showers for the whole family because we could afford it for $2 each. We could take a shower once a week at the KOA shampoo because you couldn't go bathing in the glacier fed river because you freeze your yeah. banoonies off. I mean, not you couldn't even jump in and get out. I tried. <laughs> it was too cold. I couldn't do it. Um, yeah, I went out there and managed to get my bus out of there. The day before the snows hit, my dad went out there with me. I bought a Chevy Impala motor for 150 bucks. I went out there, put it in my school bus overnight in the freezing drizzle. 
and finally got it in by morning and drove it out of there just before the snow hit and then went down through um, Seattle and took the bus down through Las Vegas. Before that was done, I was eating out of the dumpsters um, because I had no way to make income because I went down to get a job and there was 22% unemployment. I arrived with $600 in my name, went into Sam's Casino. I'd never been to Vegas. I always wanted to go to Vegas. I'd lost my first $200 finding out that casinos aren't built out of winners. Mm-mm. They build casinos out of losers. But I was so enamored all my life of reading about Vegas. Of course, play that slot machine. You get up and walk away. The next person that plays it, what to do? It teaches you a lesson. Uh-huh. What's the lesson? Either persistence pays or you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Took me a long time to figure out it means you're an idiot. <laughs> it kept happening. So I got through my addiction to gambling, which was brief. I ended up losing all my money. I ended up eating out of dumpsters. I ended up digging out of the dumpsters because I was, at that point, still somewhat proud. I'd been digging out of dumpsters since I was six years old, but not as an adult. I didn't do it as a kid because when I moved in Germany, you had 2,500 pounds you could take with you as an army brat or army, army family. And anything over 2,500 pounds went in the dumpster. Well, guess who's on last on the list? The kids. So, man, you dumpster dive, you find all sorts of toys and comic books, which I was a comic book collector. Oh, in fact, I had to leave my comic book collection behind because it was overweight. So, yes, um, I've been digging in trash cans for a long time, but <laughs> as an adult... I was staying in the parking lots for free at the casinos in my school bus because they thought we're gambling. So as long as you're there and they think mm-hmm. you're gambling, you can stay for up to four weeks when they kick you out. And as I was working through, I met with these two old men that were staying in step vans. One man was an old mechanic who retired. His arthritis got too bad for him to work anymore. He's in his 60s, which I was in my 20s. So they seem like ancient men. My age. Ancient, ancient men. <laughs> And uh, the other guy had had owned at one time the head shop in um, Clearwater, Florida, where I had gone to college at. And he's selling, making jewelry and working in the, in the um, flea markets, just traveling around the country as a retired person. So the one who has that, he's okay. But the other guy who's a mechanic, he's hitting the dumpsters every day. And I'm like, wow, you know, he's like 60-some years old on his bicycle. One day he comes back with a Rolex watch and two gold necklaces that he goes down to the pawn shop in 1982 and gets $650 in a Las Vegas pawn shop for that, which mm-hmm. is like Las Vegas don't give you nothing mm-hmm. for nothing. You're a sucker. You're there. We're going to take care you got for you to get out of here. What's the bus ticket? 300 bucks? Oh, yeah, I know it's worth a thousand bucks. No, 200. They eat you. And he got that. Well, next day, you know where I was. I was like, <laughs> okay. He said, you can't follow me, but I'll tell you, this is where you go. And I hit the apartment complexes. It didn't take long, man. You hit the one that the boyfriend threw girlfriend out or girlfriend found Mr. Money and, you know, whatever happened, you know, I found just everything that somebody owned in a dumpster. And I'd be run back and running forth and getting loads and come back on my bike. And I'd get trashed out of the dumpsters and bring it back and hide under my bus and sell it at the flea market. I'd get enough money and everything together to go ahead and fix my bus and eventually get out of there. And that's really where he got into salvage. As an army brat kid, dumpster diving for cool toys, and later in Vegas finding valuables others had discarded and selling them at flea markets just to get by. It wasn't long before Brad found himself compelled to write an insightful spiritual book. The oil boom was going on. Oh, there's, there's jobs down there. Oh, everywhere I went. There's jobs ahead of you. I got to Oklahoma. I got stuck. I didn't stay in Oklahoma but a couple of years, but I ended up going ahead and leaving there to come to Texas. Because I was coming down, I figured I had to make a million dollars to publish my book. I've been working on my, my great American novel, which is called Wibbly, the book of Wibbly and Wub. And I have a site up called Wibbly.com, W-I-B-B-L-R-Y.com, which is a beginning chapter. It's a music video you can listen to when you leave. And it actually was, is a chapter about a young man who, because of his dreadful life in his own mind, um, not understanding the meaning, or wants to learn so he commits suicide to find out the meaning by going to the other side. And... And the storyline basically is about getting to the side and all of a sudden it's just a gray void. There's nobody there. There's no trumpets. There's nothing happens. And he hasn't got a body and he hasn't got any breath. He hasn't got any, there's no, nothing to reference to. It's just like being in a gray fog. And becomes a realization that, uh-oh, maybe I screwed up. Is this all there is? Is it just nothingness? And that goes on. And with no way to gauge or measure time. 
he gets kind of concerned. And this aloneness of almost non-existence. I am, therefore, I, I think, therefore, wait a minute, if I think, therefore, how, how can I think and not, not, I am not, I don't exist. And so ultimately, the story goes about, in and out of a voice, out of the gray, he hears his name called. And he answers back, yeah, hello, hello, hello. Hey, help. Wait a second, I don't have a voice. I don't have, I don't have any air. How do I call somebody? How do I communicate? How does a spirit communicate? If it doesn't have a body, what does it do? Do you exist? And so out of this void, he calls in, in his mind and a pair of wireframe glasses appear. <laughs> and behind that, a blue racing cap. And then behind that, a character worm, an earthworm appears with a smile and starts communicating with him. It's like, who are you? And so he meets Rubbles. Rubbles is the avatar, the manifestation of his, his guide. And he says, am I, am I dead? He said, yep, you did it. You're dead. What's, what's happening? Well, how come there's nothing here? He said, well, until everything gets straightened out, because you weren't supposed to leave yet, you just kind of have to sit here in this void until everything kind of fixes itself. How long is that? We don't know. We don't know if it'll fix itself. Well, I just came to figure out why I was supposed to be here. Well, I said, if you knew, would you dedicate your entire life to that cause? Well, yeah. We don't even know what it is. <laughs> how could you say that? And he understands all of a sudden he's communicating. He doesn't understand how he's communicating. He's telepathically communicating. And so obviously one way to communicate with nothing, nobody or anything else is telepathically. So the story is about him then saying, okay, well, what is I supposed to do? And he says, you're supposed to take wibblery and wubblery. What? Wubblery? What? What? Wibblery? Wub? What is what is wub? So, well, wub is many things, but it represents energy of soul. God thought. The energy manifests all things. He said, well, well, it also means some, oh, what's that mean? World union of believers in the survival of species in the energy of soul. And he says, wub, world union of, okay, that's a capital letter. Oh, oh, wub, it also means energy of soul. So what do you do with wub? You can manifest anything you want. Wub and body, energy of soul embodied. And from this, my imagination, energy of soul, I can manifest all the things you see. I tell people all the time, this is nothing but my imagination woven together to create the reality that you get to walk through. It's energy of soul. Move through a vehicle, my robot, Brad, that Darby communicates through. That Darby shares with an exercise all my life. I didn't have this. That scoliosis last time I was 52 years old. I would hot pads under my back. I would be paralyzed sometimes for a couple of days when I hurt my back. I was on a cane where I pinched the sciatic nerve and I would lose this whole leg and just drop. <laughs> Dead meat. Until I got warm, until I got better. My lower lumbars, my thoracic would pinch my lungs when it got pinched. I would freeze my lungs. Shallow breath, shallow breath. Can't take a deep breath. Take too deep a breath, it pinched the nerve right going up the center of the back. So I had to go to chiropractors over the years, over and over and over again. At 52 years old, I was still using an infrared. I highly recommend infrared heat pads. They're infrared light relief, and they will go deep, about this deep into your skin. And then I learned about green light therapy. And I started using green light therapy 30 years ago when I, I ran this finger through a fan belt pulley while I was running and broke the finger in two places and took the fingernail off and the fingernail root was hanging out the end of this scar right here. And so I went to the plastic surgeon who laid it back down on there and stitched this up and said the root will take about three weeks to come out of shock and you'll grow a new fingernail again. And so at the same time I was getting my horoscope read. And she said, I learned about green light therapy. I just had, I used it on my mouth. It's just taking a slide projector, 500 watt slide projector, putting two green light filters on it and running that up near you and using that green light to heal. Green is the healing chakra, the healing color. And I was like, never heard of it, but uh, I got nothing to lose, man. This hurts like hell. And so I went home and did that 
got that slide projector so easy to find. They're used. You can find them all over the place. And I got the two green glass light filters. I put my hand in front of that the first time, and it felt like my finger was sizzling. And I went, whoa, no other appendage was hot. Okay. I put it in there. It's just sizzle, sizzle, sizzle. I can deal with that. Okay. Next day, no pain. The bone, no pain. Two breaks, no pain. I went back. I taken the stitches out a week later. I went back to the, su- the surgeon about two weeks later, though, two weeks later to see how I was. I'd already grown my fingernail on halfway within three weeks. And you can tell I never even hurt the finger. There's no evidence of it in the scar. Over the years, I've used that several times, over and over and over again, for people that had concussions, people that had surgery, skin grafts that wouldn't heal. I've used it for sprained ankles. Green laser is amazing, amazing mm-hmm. what you can do with it. It fascinates me how we come across these solutions. Green light laser therapy recommended by a fortune teller, and here he is years later still using that. It's interesting that Brad went from living in a school bus, struggling to find work, to becoming a millionaire. I did that by the time I was 35, right? And, uh, so you've really lived at both ends of the spectrum. I got caught up in the million. That was the sad part. I kept going because I was trying to create a legacy for my son. I was, uh, I was trying to, I, I made my five, I made, I made a million, but to make a million dollars on paper, you have to have a million dollars in debt and another million dollars in assets on top of that. Yeah. And you net a million. That's right. assuming you can sell it. Well, it's, it's a deception. At one point, I got to be $3 million in debt. At $3 million in debt, it takes about $500,000 a year to service that. Mm-hmm. That's insurance, interest, taxes, maintenance. You don't spend a penny on yourself yet. That's just taking care of the three million dollars. <laughs> okay. They're now that's not that. even counting employees. Oh, wow. Now let's <laughs> add employees into this mix. Yeah, and I'm not a good manager. I never had patience. My dad was army, and I was brought up. You bounce a quarter on my bed when you made it, or you went and made it again. Mm. Okay. I am sorry to say that I did not consider myself to be in my Brad mode anything other than a drill sergeant, which doesn't work good in the civilian world because in the army you go to the brig if you don't get commit, and in the civilian world it's like. Oh, yeah, F you, bye. Mm-hmm. I don't need you. So you can't actually tell employees what to do. you got to no. coax them into doing something. <laughs> One contributing factor to his eventual millionaire status was learning to be an effective salesman. At one point, using those skills in the health club industry, seeking to improve his own physical physique, and ironically discovering how unhealthy he really was. I came down here and Adam was born. I got hold of Tom Hopkins tapes. I started working in real estate. I came down here and worked in the, went to the health industry because I'd worked in the health clubs before. I learned how to become a good salesman over the years by watching good salesmen. I always found it very easy to sell health memberships. Who can justify being unhealthy? But the industry, it was rampant with taking advantage of people's imperfections and inability to, to deal with the onslaught of mass media. And, and it's really difficult. But I understand now, even as fit as you are, you don't lift weights. I don't touch weights. I won't touch them anymore. I only did that in my 40s. I was in my 40s. My back was good enough to be able to do it. And I was determined to be bigger than my son. I went to, I graduated high school at 185, which is the heaviest I'd been. Went back to 175. Went down as low as 149 coming out of the army. I had some young kid drug issues. Then I went up to 175 or so and went down in my 30s and went up. But with my son, I took myself up to... 200 pounds. I had 16-inch wow. guns. I was going for bulk. I was doing massive weights and, and trying to be bigger, stronger. Six foot four, I couldn't keep up. <laughs> anyway, um, when I first started, I thought I was in such good shape. And I get in there, I worked 15 minutes and I didn't throw up. I was like, oh, God. In shape isn't what you look like. It's what you are able to do. Yeah. And so... I had hypoglycemia, incidentally, um, at a very early age as well. I almost burned out my pancreas by the time I was 21 years old. I was a sugar freak to the point of buying a box of sugar cubes and eating them straight. 
or walking into the restaurant and grabbing all the bags of sugar off the tables for free and then going out and tearing the tops off the bags and pouring them in my mouth and eating them straight. I was a severe sugar addict. And then by the time I was 21 years old, working in a health club, my mom didn't know anything about nutrition. I mean, fried spam was one of our weekly <laughs> dinner. Yes, I cannot stand the smell of it to this day. <laughs> I cannot. Spanish rice was rice with ketchup on it and pepper. Oh. Okay, so I had no idea what nutrition was. I'm working at a health club. Wow. From learning from a con man how to get money on people. I was making really good money, and I was getting in good condition physically, I thought. Meantime, inside of my body was dying. My pancreas was about to blow out. And I was having grand mal seizures on the floor sometimes, um, fainting spells, energy issues, severe mood swings, and I didn't know what it was. And a girl gave me the book Sugar Blues by, I think, Miss Goodwin was her name. And it changed my life. I had a list of symptoms, 40 symptoms of if you have hypoglycemia, pre-diabetic, your, your pancreas is your insulin maker. And it's going like this, trying to keep up with all the sugar I'm eating. And I'm just running that insulin. And it's like trying to run your battery. You're running it at 150 miles an hour. You can't do that for very long. So I hard, cold, quit, white rice, white flour, white sugar. Wow. Um, and all the things that cause your body to go haywire. And coffee, I'd pick it up coffee. So I could do you know, 10, 12 cups, 14 cups a day of coffee, too. Wow. Oh, and my dinner every day, what do you think? Oh, Burger King Whopper and a milkshake. Oh, my God. It was good. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But do you know how many people are still walking around out there looking great that aren't great inside because we put so much emphasis on the outside? I was that case. I was a walking case of walking out there. Oh, yeah. Wait a second. That's not how you take care of your body, guys. Uh, and also, you get really constrained movements with machines and weights. You don't get yeah. your, you don't get the, what turns out to be is all this is from stretching. I don't do any weights. This is, this is nothing but a stretching routine and breathing, pranayama out breathing, learning how to breathe, all the different ways you breathe, and tighten up your belly with deep breathing. The breathing is breathe in, hold, breathe out, hold, all with the belly first, not the chest. In America, we teach you to breathe through your chest. It's your belly, your third lung. Once this gets perfected, that is your battery. That allows your core to function and feed. This is your battery. It feeds all the mitochondria and gives your energy up. I used to have naps every day at 50 years old, 3 in the afternoon. You know, that tired spell gets you. Like, okay, I'd like to see uh, what the computer is in front of my computer. Oh, no, I got to do this. I can't stay up. Oh, I got to lay down. I was Every day I was having that problem. And so... I used to take supplements. I did a lot of things in my 50s, try to stay healthy, try to stay young. You know, we all know people who look really healthy and their insides are telling a different story. I have my own work to do in that area for sure. Well, after the health club years came millionaire days in real estate in Austin, Texas. When I read the book Beyond the Hype in Real Estate Business, a book was written by a guy. He died after he went back into the business of real estate. The heart stress killed him. But it was a book about called Beyond the Hype and it talked about how Real estate agents and brokers, which was how I made my money in doing the real estate sales in inner, inner city, East Austin, South, all old houses, my specialty. My super specialty was East Austin, where only the unusual lived. And so I went over there and sold the same sex couples, interracial couples, and we developed a neighborhood that was known for its eccentricity and its diversity. I owned it one time. I was the second biggest landholder in the zip code behind the University of Texas. And I owned like 40 red houses. Um, I was working on them, fixing them up, rehabbing them, and selling them. And so I made a lot of money and converted crack houses. My specialty was taking the houses the police were watching. We had whore houses in our neighborhood. And then the whores would work the corner, and uh, pimps would sit on the porch of the building I eventually bought for my offices because it was empty because nobody would dare run a business out of there. And put a fence up. By then, my I dropped my regular real estate 
guys, the tie with the sports jacket and all that. And I started having my ponytail and my beard and stuff because I found out that the people I wanted to deal with actually trusted me more being a real person than they did in the suit, tie, and garb that the realtors use. Well, there's 7,500 realtors in Austin with an average income of less than 7,500 a year. Only a few people make it. Now, I was in the top 5%. I was making great money. My specialty was a niche. And in the end, I got bored because I would show you three houses and you'd pick one of those three houses because I listened to what you want. I knew my market. I didn't dance you around to 50 houses. I didn't have the time. You didn't have the time. Problem was, I only got home at 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock to see my son. I worked weekends and I didn't get to see my child. So I quit. He was um, 11. And we moved to Gonzales, Texas. And that's where I got to be with him. So I started the architecture antiques business because I wanted to go out and buy stuff. I already had a big stock of stuff I'd bought for fixing up houses. I'd fix up so many of them. I wouldn't use aluminum windows. I wouldn't use plastics. And so when I went down there, I started, um, I thought, wow, I just have the government pay for me going out buying shit, traveling. Well, if you've had kids when they're 14 years old, all of a sudden you're not the coolest thing in the world. We ended up playing paintball and some other things when he was 16, 17. But of course, by the time he was 18. The business is still there. It's a good business. It was the biggest architectural antiques business in the country in the end because after 14, and he didn't want to hang around with dad anymore, workaholic dad went back to doing what he does. When he was about 21, I decided to get divorced and um, in the process, had to reform who I was because I had this new business I started, which I was firmly entrenched in and believed in and was passionate about. Soon, a personal tragedy changed Brad's life forever. When I was young, I thought I'd die at 25. I swore I'd die at 25. I lived life like it didn't matter. I didn't die at 25. Oh, my son passed away six years ago. At that point, all things changed because I named him after me. I forgot. I named Adam Brad Cattell. He died at 25 years old. I warned him not to go to Paris twice. I stopped him. I said, son, please don't come. And then he said, don't go in these neighborhoods where the kids are running away and all the bombs we've dropped and they're squatting in all these apartments. So... He was over there on the permaculture and wolf program and stuff. And uh, my extended iPhone, of course, to carry around with him. I lived on the streets with a backpack and a guitar. Yeah. Didn't have it on him when they found him in the river. But it changed my life because what you learn is you don't appreciate things until they're gone. You don't really understand. Best things you understand are through hindsight. So I'm part of that generation that wasted treasure. So we could have all these things which don't mean anything. What means something is how you are inside. Are you happy with yourself? Well, I was angry. I lived an angry life. My dad was angry. Two times in Vietnam. You know, I pulled my first shotgun on a man at 15 years old, dragging my wife, my mom out of the house because he was drunk to beat her up. I had lots of wonderful lessons in life. I learned so much. But I had armor on. I had really good armor on all my life from my childhood. You couldn't touch my heart. You couldn't hurt me. Then my dog died, my favorite dog, my son. I got hurt. What it teaches you is, in my belief, appreciation. And you start to live. How do you live? You have to appreciate what you had. And that pain is actually love flowing through you like you never understood existed. Brad goes by Darby now. Darby is Brad backwards. And that's so appropriate for a man who literally turned himself around physically, emotionally, spiritually. And I did ask him, as I ask all my guests, for his parting thought. I have also a couple of musical um, videos. One of them is uh, called Song of Salvage. Then there's also another one that's called the the chasm at the fringe. And that's the important one. 
Um, it's about when you go to change your life, you go to make that leap of faith. I'm going to do this. But to do this, I'm going to have to leave everything behind. i got to risk it all. Because I found in life that it isn't until you're willing to risk it all that you make the great success. But the ones that drop out just before it's everything or nothing, they never succeed. And so the chasm at the fringe is a story of what happens when you reach that juncture in your life, as many people are right now. Where all of a sudden, oh my God, I can't live in the cell I'm accustomed to for the rest of my life. And goodness, I don't know that I want to. It's time for change. This is killing me. And so as people come to this juncture, the chasm at the fringe of what society says is okay. You can't have the big house. You can't have the big car. You need all these things. This is a canyon. And to hold together, to make it, to make this leap, I've got to have 100% faith. I can't listen to everybody saying, no, you can't do that. You can't go there. You can't be a producer. You can't go on travel. You can't do this. You can't do that. No, I can't listen to y'all. I've got everything on the line. I'm asking for a little bit of help to finish it up. So people to invest in a few of the houses that I created so we get the cash flow to get this self self-sustaining, to pay the land off and put in a trust, an irrevocable trust. And that'll be the model. And from here, we'll make enough money to finance and launch outposts, co-ops, and fuel them with people's energy, which is coming out now. It's being opened up, but there's no path for it. If, as Gandhi said, as Buddha said, if I can light a million candles with my flame. Mm. That's what this is about. So these are my seeds. My little houses were my seeds. Now I'm making the garden. And soon the garden will be where you come to be seeded, fertilized. And then you take off. And with what I give you, that flame, that passion, you won't be able to be stopped. So this is just a little bit about the man behind tinytexashouses.com and what a brilliant mind he has. He is such a creative genius when it comes to using, repurposing salvage into beautiful works of art that we can live in and leave to our kids and our grandkids and they're toxin-free. We're going to share all of that in our digital magazine, which comes out October 1st with a whole theme around less is more. I hope you'll join us for that online at journeyofpossibilities.com. Would you like to be a guest on Exploring Possibilities? Drop me a note at info at journeyofpossibilities.com. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you next time on Exploring Possibilities.